We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Based in Germany and a global leader in digital language learning, 16-year-old Babbel was part of the early wave of online subscriptions. When they launched, subscription pricing was unusual and controversial. The early team even had to develop their own subscription engine to support their business. My guest today, Julie Hansen, has led the company's expansion into North America as well as their overall business strategy. In our conversation, we discuss the differences between European and U.S.-based best practices in subscription, how to make the case for investing in features that drive engagement rather than just acquisition, and how a first mover can stay nimble even as the competitive landscape grows more crowded. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. I want to jump right in with the Babel origin story. Why did you launch with subscriptions, especially before subscriptions were all the rage everywhere? Yeah, it's actually a great story. The company was started 16 years ago when one of the four co-founders wanted to learn Spanish and turned to the internet and found there was no good way in Germany to learn Spanish online. So these were four folks who were working together at another company and they broke off and created Babbel. And they started out by creating the first product, you know, put it into the market and immediately a strong reception but they decided that they did they were going to go for an ad supported model and after not very long they saw that the advertisements were really detracting from the learning experience they were interrupting and they felt that it was not the right model for an education product and that we wanted to have a more sustainable model that would promote long-term customer relationships, but that would really allow the best possible learning experience that didn't have the interruptions of ads. And that is how it all started 16 years ago. It was not a popular decision to go premium back then. Who didn't like that decision? Well, there's actually a fantastic uh, headline from Fast Company magazine from 13 years ago. And the headline reads, can freemium work? Babbel and Wall Street Journal say no, and one of them is wrong. It turns out that it was Fast Company that was wrong because I think that worked out pretty well for the Wall Street Journal as well as Babel. But in general, so the tech press didn't like it. And for consumers, it was a somewhat radical notion. But we did not actually receive a lot of pushback at that time from consumers. Sort of immediate consumer adoption of the model, again, because the value was there and the user experience was what people thought was appropriate for a learning product. Do you think most organizations that are teaching people something, agree with you about advertising being disruptive to the learning experience? Is that kind of an accepted truth now? I think it is even for those organizations that still choose to offer free model with advertising. I think there's an understanding that that's an interruption. Even if the ad is placed at the end of a lesson, what have you, it's still a little bit of friction to the user continuing on to the next lesson. One can argue that that's an okay trade-off to have a free learning experience. So 
I don't think that free will ever go away from learning products. But it's hard to argue that it's hard enough to get people to do their homework. When you put a little friction between the user and that homework, it diminishes their success. And you might have to overcome that with strong engagement features. And that might or might not work depending on the product. Yeah. I know you know that one of my first clients was Netflix, which is streaming entertainment service. And a lot of companies, and I myself early on thought that whatever Netflix was doing was right for all subscriptions. But the business model really has to follow the content, the product being offered. And I think learning is different than being entertained. It's a lean forward, not a lean back kind of experience. What have you learned about how people learn generally or specifically how they learn languages that has influenced how you design the user experience beyond no ads? Yeah, it's a great question. The user experience is critical in terms of creating an engaging and a motivating learning environment, You know, providing the right feedback loops, support, encouragement, challenge, You know, all of those. Getting the balance of those right in an app is super important. Language in particular, you know, there are a lot of proven learning techniques. And by the way, there are quite a number of different learning philosophies or approaches, but we use the communicative method for the language nerds out there. But one thing that we've determined through a lot of research is that users need multiple touch points and they need guidance through their learning. So multiple touch points, some of us learn better by reading, by writing. I'm a writer. Like I keep a notebook of words and when I get a new word in German, I write it down. That's how I remember. Others do better with listening, with speaking, and most do best with all of those together. And so over the years, part of what's made Babbel a great subscription product is we've been able to continue enhancing the product to bring more and more of those learning experiences to life in the product. So we add video content, audio content, culture bites to give people an appreciation, not just of the language, but the culture of the people that speak that language. Games, we have a lot of fun games that we use to reinforce grammar or vocabulary. So all of these things are brought together in the app. And some people respond better to certain learning methodologies, and but they're all there. And that reinforcement, that those multiple touch points are huge. At the same time, the notion of guidance is really important to language learners in particular. If you and I tried to think back to when we were a year old learning a language, we don't know how we do it. Like you just do it as a child. As an adult, it's different and it's confusing. And there's a lot of different ways to go about it. I think we're also very aware that an app will not make you fluent. Even Babbel will not make you fluent. We're not suggesting it would. None of our marketing says that. What it can do though, is give you the perfect starting point and reinforcement and can get you pretty far. And then you need to enrich your learning experience with speaking uh, with live classes, which we now offer a live product, again, a subscription product. So it's the reason why we've gone deep in language rather than wide into other educational topics is we think that that's the best language learning solution. And that's, we are very, very focused on the notion of efficacy. Like we want our solution to work. We want our learners to learn and to be able to go speak the language. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk about this idea of a forever promise, that a good subscription has a forever promise. You stick with us and we promise, fill in the blank. And think for Babbel, it's about we'll help you learn the language as opposed to we'll educate you on any number of topics, we'll demonstrate the culture, we'll help you plan a great trip or whatever other benefits you might have considered along the way. 
was that an easy decision and an obvious decision or have there been temptations to expand broad and shallow rather than continuing to go deeper and deeper into language learning? Definitely thought about which is the right choice for us. And we have a technology that could be used in many different directions. But I think the company has decided that it's better to be deep than wide, if you will, that language is our focus. And it's cool. I don't know that when we started the subscription business 16 years ago, we had a well-defined notion of a forever promise. But when you think about the journey, it's exactly what we did, which is pretty cool. You know, we started out, it was a website. You can join the website. And then there was an app. You didn't pay any extra for the app. The app just came with. And then there were podcasts. We now have these 10 million downloads of the podcast. That is pretty rich support and enthusiasm for this new media. No extra money for that. The games, you don't pay extra for that. So we've just kept adding more value to the product over the years. And that's exactly the point of the forever promise, isn't it? It is. It's a lesson that's important. And I hope people are taking this in, the kind of discipline that you've exercised and how hard it is in the moment because... So many businesses are focused on the new feature driving new subscribers or new customers. And this idea that if we have a subscriber and they're loyal, why would we spend more money to make it better for them? Because we already got them. And I'm wondering, as you think about these new, let's call them benefits that you're incorporating into the subscription, like podcasts, like games, in the cases where you're not increasing the price, so not the live piece, but the ones that are incorporated as part of your standard offering, how do you measure or decide whether it's worth investing in? Is there a metric that tells you it's good that we did podcasts or, wow, we wasted a lot of money on that investment when it's not directly tied, let's say, to its own revenue line? Yeah, I guess two things are our kind of guiding metrics there. One is this notion of learner success. North Star metric is learner success, which is not easy to measure, but we do. And so always looking at new product enhancements in terms of did it increase learner success and maybe any of the health metrics along the way, usage, retention, did it help us users get to a certain milestone in the product that we know is a trigger for learner success? So that's always the number one. And then, of course, we look at retention on the commercial side. Did this, are people sticking around more? And those two work hand in hand. But when one is the most important, and that is the notion of learner success. Okay. So when you introduce a new benefit or a new feature, you're tying that to how do we measure the impact of that new feature on learner success and then to a lesser extent retention, which can kind of be a proxy for whether or not they're having success, they believe they're having success and they're sticking around. <laughs> exactly. They're feeling good about it. Even if we can't prove anything, they feel like it's worth their time. I think that's a really important challenge for a lot of organizations, sort of thinking about when do we add features? How do we prove that those features are worthwhile if they're not driving acquisition? And I often talk about you have features that drive acquisition, you have features that drive engagement and retention. And you have to know what you're trying to do and what you're optimizing around before you add a feature so that you can tell if it, if it works or not. It's different, though, than having 25 different products that are all transactional and letting the market tell you, oh, more people are buying this and fewer people are buying that. Yeah, exactly. We've definitely made the deliberate choice to keep enhancing the core Babel product as opposed to launching lots of different products. You know, games is not a separate app. It's part of Babel for that exact reason. I think we believe that if users achieve success, they're making progress, if they're able to speak, if they take that trip and they can order in the cafe, all of those things, then they're happy to pay. And if they're not using the product and not learning, then 
they should cancel. We don't want to make that hard either. It's about the user success. Yeah. Can I quote you on that? If they're not using the product and making progress, they should cancel. That's a bold and confident statement uh, <laughs> from a leader. I love it. Yeah. We've always had a 20 day money back guarantee as well. Some people take us up on that and there's no fight. So it's important. We've, we once had a very, for me, fun discussion at the executive level about what do we think about those users who have a subscription and it's renewing, but they're not really using the product. And I said, at the time, just reflecting on the US experience, where we have so many aspirational learners, but less opportunity to use a new language in this country. I said, you know, maybe it's like a gym membership or a membership to that highbrow literary publication that sits on your coffee table and you don't get to read it every week, but you want to have that subscription because you want it there when you can. You aspire to it. Is that good enough for us? Because I think from a user perspective, that's meeting a need. And everyone, you know, thought about it. No, we want them learning. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a strongly held view in the company. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people that go with the aspirational model and say, if we're giving people hope, hope that they'll lose weight, hope that they'll go to the gym, hope that they'll read The New Yorker instead of Netflix and chill. Lots of aspiration in subscription products. But at the end of the day, people feel best about the products that they use. And Netflix, I think, has led the way by saying, if you haven't used your product, if you haven't logged in in a year, which granted is a very long time to be paying for something and not using it. You haven't used the product for a year, we're canceling you. We're kicking you out because we don't want your money. And granted, it's still 12 months, but the idea I think is the right idea. You want people to get the value they came for, get the outcomes they came for. That's the best metric. And the second best metric is, are they using the product? Do they believe that the product is helping them on that journey? So I think these are important points. And I really appreciate what you said about that. I was also interested, you know, you brought up a couple of times that the fact that the Babel is located and based in Germany. You run US, a very big business, but it does have strong German roots. Are there cultural differences, especially in how they think about a subscription? For sure. I mean, I started six and a half years ago just on the US business and I now run global revenue. So B2B and B2C. So I'm working with a Berlin-based team all the time, which has given me an even deeper appreciation of the cultural differences. And within the company, we have employees from more than 70 countries. It is absolutely amazing experience to work with so many cultures under one roof. You could argue that our German roots provide a focus on like quality, reliability, innovation. We're the quiet improvers rather than the flashy tech newcomers. We do not overpromise. And those might be kind of classically German traits. These cultural differences are real. They can be very challenging, but they can also provide amazing opportunities for learning and growth. I think that I've learned a lot about like abstraction, planning, process, just being a part of this company. And I think I've probably shared in return urgency, pragmatism, optimism, kind of classic American traits. But it's not just German and American. Like, as I said, there's 70 nationalities. When we first launched in the US, Babel launched, as I said, 16 years ago in Germany and then grew quickly in Europe. And it was an overnight success. The Babel brand in Germany is a household name. You get in the taxi and they know Babel. That's amazing. And I love to tell Americans our first marketing slogan because it inevitably draws a really good laugh. It was, you could learn a language online. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, like who cares? Why do I care? Do I even want to learn a language? Just such a different starting place. So when we got going here, we had to really change the messaging because the motivations are so different. But we also changed the media mix pretty radically. The U.S. is, from a media perspective, we are a crystal ball. What happens here will happen in England in about two and a half years in the U.K., and then in Germany in about four or five years. So why would we be looking backwards to the media environment? We should be looking forward. So we leaned heavily into social, digital, podcasts, newsletters, all the things that took off over the past six years in the U.S. market. So we had to change everything. And we also had to change even the products a little bit to make it more culturally relevant. So the number one complaint to customer service when I started was in the U.S. was that we had the wrong Spanish. We had the Spanish that they speak in Spain and the U.S. learners don't learn that anymore in school. It's Mexican Spanish. So had to uh, bring that out. And then we added more podcasts because that's of interest to the U.S. audience. Even before Germany, we made the lessons shorter. So quite a number of cultural differences that have an impact on the product itself and on the marketing. In terms of the willingness to pay for a subscription, that is pretty universal across the two continents or really worldwide. Maybe in certain like Latin American countries where credit cards aren't as commonly used, it's a slightly different attitude and we're going to try on different models there. We don't see much difference in the US and Germany or elsewhere in terms of resist acceptance of subscriptions. Huh. So that's interesting. I have several clients right now that are expanding globally in different ways in different regions and asking questions like, does China accept subscriptions, which feels like a pretty monolithic, overly simplistic question. But that is a question that one client asked, or is it too early to take our products, which are doing very well in the US, to the UK? What advice do you have for your North American peers that are looking at the rest of the world having been on the journey from the other direction now? Yeah, I know the most about European expansion. So I would say there, you have to pay a surprising amount of attention to pricing. It's not one price for all of Europe. About You have to pay attention to like, make sure that your GDPR stuff is in order, your privacy stuff. And like, it will be an evaluation point for a certain number of European buyers. So it's not the fine print the way it might be in the States, but it's kind of important to be upfront about that. And of course, you've got to localize the messaging. Yeah. So localizing the messaging, understanding both the regulations by market and also how those regulations are perceived by consumers. Yeah. And then you talked about the pricing sensitivities. I'm assuming that you mean that different markets have different abilities to pay. And so the price as a percentage of their income or as a percentage of their discretionary income is very different. Absolutely. We've found fascinating differences. Like in the US, you would often see three pricing cards and the one in the middle is just right. In Germany, we often find we give them five prices. They want the data, give them more options. In the US, that would be considered like overwhelming and a bad practice, but actually it's often worked really well for us in Germany. Like you'd never know that until you had German colleagues who suggest we try it. It's amazing. There are certain markets in Europe where frankly, if you raise the price, you might increase sales because it would be perceived as a marker of quality. In other countries, you will crush sales if you raise the price too much. So it really varies a lot. You just have to learn it from your peers and from the school of hard knocks, or is there some cheat sheet or book or insight that helped you understand 
all of these interesting market dynamics by country or by region. Even just the example of Germans want to see five options, whereas Americans want to see three options is really interesting to me. It is interesting. We have people, that's our secret. We have people in market and it's the reason why my role exists and the, the team of 70 people that we have here is that we just needed local experts. And that's part of the magic of having the 70 different nationalities in the Berlin office is we always have a, you know, ask the French person or the Spanish person or what have you. Yeah. There's no substitute for peers who are helpful. It's interesting. One of my past guests is the CEO of Tinder and she had grown up, I think she'd grown up at Apple managing European apps or sort of expansion from the U.S. into European countries or European apps that want to reach out into the U.S. market. And she said some very similar things. She said, you know, localizing is more than changing the language. It's about everything, including the offer and this importance of really getting into the nuance of each country and each region because they don't all play like the U.S. It's kind of like the Netflix example, right? You can learn a lot from Netflix about subscriptions, but not every decision that Netflix makes can be applied to every other kind of business. And the United States, I think, does a lot of things really well and first in subscriptions, but you can't just take the U.S. playbook and apply it to other markets without considering those nuances. 100% agree. There are interesting nuances around how much email is too much email. We have a certain email cadence that we send out to our leads and even our subscribers here in the U.S., totally normal. That works. Our European colleagues feel strongly like, absolutely not. We cannot send that many. People will unsubscribe. It is bad. <laughs> so that's an easy one to test, right? I mean, because sometimes people say, like, I have a very nice client from Canada. Canadians are known for their friendly, gentle, polite ways. And I was talking to them about, you could be a little more direct in your messaging. And we had to talk about it. And well, we feel like that's a lot, of, but that's easy to test. You send out a message with a stronger tone and either people unsubscribe or they don't. You send out, I mean, I know some companies, you know, they test even here. What would happen if we sent out one message a week? That seems like so much. Well, what about if it was once a day? What about if we had a morning, midday and evening, especially like in the world of news? What if we had a newsletter for each subtopic and you kind of push the envelope and have some number in mind of this kind of churn is okay? You found that borne out that these ideas about different levels of email by country is true. We are just starting to test that theory. I totally agree with you. That is testable. And we'll see. And my prediction is it'll be somewhere in the middle. Maybe the US quantity or cadence of emails will be too much, but probably what we're doing now is not enough. Yeah. I mean, that's always a challenge. And I think the benefit of having leadership from another market or from another industry, frankly, is that they can look at things and say, you're not special. This should work. For example, for many years, law firms and venture firms had a belief that marketing was cheesy, full stop. So having a beautiful website and keeping it updated would be perceived by the market as being a non-serious firm. And of course, we know that's not true. I mean, companies like McKinsey or the big venture firms, they spend a fortune on marketing now. So anyway, really interesting to kind of balance between we know our audience or we know our people versus this is just how we've always done it. and We've actually never tested it. So interesting um, questions around this kind of European US questions. I know early on, you mentioned early on in Germany, you were the first language app, the only language app, the beloved local darling favorite monopoly. And more recently, 
And certainly here in the United States, you're seeing more competitors. Like this is a good space. Language learning is important and lots of people want to do it. There's Rosetta Stone, which has mostly used an ownership kind of model where you buy the software and then you own it. Duolingo, which is mostly free. And I'm curious, as you see more crowded market, how do you change or not change your strategy? We live a Harvard Business School case study each and every day because we really are in a market with very different business models. And that's super interesting. The other thing that business school would remind us is that competition is good. You need competitive forces to make your best product, to do your best marketing, et cetera. So it's good that there's competition. And we have over the past, I mean, the pandemic boosted pretty much all players in the market and the leaders have continued growing. That says something about the power of more than one market player to grow the market which probably wouldn't happen if, if we were a monopolist, which would, <laughs> we'd still be able to sleep at night being a monopolist. It'd be okay, but <laughs> we don't have that luxury anymore, not in the, in the English-speaking world or Spanish-speaking world in particular. So it's good to have competition. Because we start us so early on with this premium model, that's kind of what has defined us and distinguished us. So the all about the high-quality learning experience, the blend of humans and technology, and we're staying focused on that space and deepening the content that's available, enriching the product, et cetera, really hammering on the efficacy. That is what it's. this strong competition has forced us to really focus and be clear about how Babel is different and better. And that's also a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think for people listening, being the monopoly is kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have no competition and you can kind of own the market. On the other hand, you don't have anybody making you better, as you point out. You don't have anyone else sort of footing the bill for educating the market that this is an offering. And if nobody else wants to play, there might be a reason for that. Maybe that you've got some big barriers to entry, but it may also be that maybe there's not as much potential as you thought. So I think a lot of times having other players supports the growth of the whole space and the confidence in that space. Yeah, 100%. And monopolists do tend to be vulnerable to blind spots as well. Good competition helps to shield you from that. Yeah, good competition helps you see that there's other ways to do it, other ways that work, other kinds of segments that are interested in a free product and they don't mind the ad interruptions or they just want to pay one time and never have to pay again rather than feeling there is some subscription fatigue out in the world right now. So when I wrote my first book, The Membership Economy, I really believed that a company had to commit to subscription pricing. Like either you were a subscription business like Netflix or you weren't. And I saw, for example, Hulu or when I worked with newspapers that have a lot of revenue from advertising, but also have circulation revenue or reader revenue, as they call it now. That, oh, this is really hard. It's too many different models. Not only is it distracting for the marketing team that's trying to sell these products, it's distracting for the product team who's designing for an ad-driven product is different than designing a product that somebody paid for up front. So over the years, though, I've kind of changed my tune. I still think it's more expensive and it's harder to have multiple models, but I understand how it can expand your reach that sometimes one model leads to the other. The freemium ad-supported model gives people a chance to taste your content. Then when they really decide that they believe in what you're doing, they can upgrade. What do you think about offering multiple types of packaging? for your value. Is that something that you think about or where do you come out on that? And as you see your peers doing other things. Yeah, we're very excited about the possibilities that mixed models open up. Subscriptions will always remain a core thing that we offer. And this is because we love the, the way 
aligns our goals and our consumers' goals. We keep improving the product, they keep improving their learning. That alignment is fantastic. But the one-time payment options offer up so many possibilities, especially for a company like ours with more and more products that we're bringing to market. So just to give you some use case examples, you know, imagine a consumer who's not ready to commit to live classes yet, not ready to sign up for a schedule, but wants to add a couple of live classes a month to her app subscription so that she can practice speaking. You know, we can't really do that now, but we're soon launching a new billing management system that would allow that. That's a great use case. Um, our core market is lifelong learners. This is not a classroom product. It's for people who, adults mostly, who want to learn. You know, if you're a lifelong learner, a lifetime subscription is a pretty nice option. One-time payment, use it forever. You know that language learning is, can be a lifelong pursuit. It's not an overnight thing. So this really lines up well for a lot of people. Or another, like I love to think about it, such a common American use case, you know, the family planning their European vacation. They have a fixed term need. They're getting ready for a trip. So a one-time payment, you know, family pack is ideal for them. And then when they come home and if they want to keep going, because they fell in love with a language, then they can upgrade to a subscription. So there's just a lot of use cases where either one-time payments or a mixed model is really powerful. It's interesting because I think about that forever, your forever promise really around best way to get started in learning a language or best way to learn a language. And then thinking about, well, gosh, if that's really true, best way to learn a language for a family going to Europe might be different than best way to learn a language for someone who married a non-English speaker from another language. You want to learn to speak with the in-laws and the childhood friends and all of that. You might have a longer runway than if you're optimizing for Europe. And also, you know, your example of maybe I'll take a few live classes. I'm probably more likely to take the live classes right before my visit whether that's my European trip or my first visit to meet my in-laws. And afterwards, the stakes are a lot lower. And so maybe I go back to the online only or I go back to the once a week checking in with my language learning as opposed to daily working on dedicating time every day. So I find that interesting. The expansion over the last 16 years of who you're serving and where you're investing more to serve them better. Exactly right. So I just want to touch on this point because I think it's important. You've been around for 16 years. You brought up the point that now your new billing system is going to allow you to offer these different pricing options. For many people listening, they have lots of ideas of things that they would do, but they are limited by their platform. Maybe because it was self-created, maybe because it's old and it was bought when they had a different idea of what their model was going to be. And they're trying to make it work, kind of jerry-rigging it together, but it's not optimized for their vision for the future. As a business that's been around for 16 years, how have you thought about the technology to support your strategy? That's a great question. I mean, 16 years ago, we had to build it. There really were not a lot of options out there. So we built something that worked great for a decade and a half. You know, it's stable, it's efficient, it works, it got the job done. And it allowed us to focus our energy on the product, not necessarily on the commercial side of the technology. But the time has come for us to re-examine that decision because there are a lot of, we're entering a multi-product world and that creates far more complexity in how you sell what you sell. And we've also put together, we've jury-rigged and hacked about as much as one might want to. You know, for example, you want to give Babel as a gift? Great. You can't do it on our platform. So it's time for us. I think waited long enough such that we have a really good understanding of what we need, of what's missing and what we need. And it's a non-trivial decision. I mean, these are big 
tech projects that come with hefty bills, but it's time for us. Yeah. And it's your point about, you know what you need. I mean, I think a lot of companies don't even know what the requirements should be. And when you hear a pitch from a vendor, they all sound really good. And the hard part is saying, well, these are the actual things we need to do. Can you do that? Having that requirements document, I think is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And many of those requirements have come out of like things we've learned the hard way. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I think you're going to get something really good because you know what you need at this point. I could talk to you all day. I have a lot more questions, but I want to just close out this interview with a speed round if you're up for it. All right. First thing to pop into your head. You ready? Ready. First subscription you ever had. I think it was to a like a teenage girl magazine back in the day. I'm really dating myself here, I know, but I'm pretty sure it was either that or like swimmer magazine. Okay, cool. Your most favorite subscription today? Strava. Besides Babbel, of course. <laughs> yeah, besides Babbel, I should have said that, but present company excluded. I do have a really nice interview with the chief revenue officer at Strava if people are interested in learning more about how they think about their subscription. And talk about like, continuing to add value, more features, more products, and they do a great job of telling the users when they do. Huge fan. Yeah. Oh, good. I will share that. That's great. Something you can say in three languages. Thank you. Merci, Danka. <laughs> <laughs> the last course you took in any subject besides language. Probably has to go with a sports theme again, learning how to ski. I took some classes. I clearly did not take enough because I broke my leg a month ago. <laughs> That's probably the most <laughs> recent one that I took. Oh, gosh. And then last question, advice for other first movers facing an increasingly crowded landscape? Yeah, keeping your time horizon for strategy short and long, You know, making sure you're looking far enough around the corner to spot those long-term trends, but also reviewing it, revising it every year, getting like focusing on incremental improvements, so important. It might be old fashioned or out of flavor, but I always appreciated Andy Grove's Only the Paranoid Survive. I do think there is something to that. We live in a very competitive world. And that was probably three pieces of advice, but there you are. Oh, it's great. I love that. Use your microscope and your telescope. There you go. Be a little bit paranoid. I think that's a great place to end. Julie, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Robbie. It was fun. That was Julie Hansen, Chief Revenue Officer and U.S. CEO of Babbel. For more about Julie and about Babbel, go to babbel.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Julie, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Julie in this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our show, and we appreciate each one. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.